This is the follow-up sidebar episode for August 21st, 2017, for episode 9 of Unconcluded, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 2006 disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. I'm Sean Gerd. And I'm Scott Jameson. As always, we will respond to your voicemails, emails, and social media comments about episode 9, or anything else for that matter. In episode 9, we recap the previous search locations related to this case and heard from a woman who believes she saw Jennifer's car in an Oak Ridge wooded patch. To be upfront, we did not have the opportunity to follow up with this witness before we're recording this show. So for those of you who had specific questions that only she could answer, those will have to wait. But when we do get responses, we will share them with you. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. We received some calls on our voicemail line this week, so we'll go ahead and get to those now. Hi, my name is Drew, and I'm calling from Atlanta. I enjoy the podcast. I was wondering if uh, Jennifer Casey's family filed a lawsuit against the apartment complex for negligent security, and I was wondering if any material was uh, learned or discovered as a result of that lawsuit. Thank you. Let me first say that it's not our place to make any comments on what the family has done or might plan to do. But even with that, I don't know the answer to your question anyways, but imagine that if there was such a lawsuit, we would have heard of it. Based on a limited internet search by yours truly, law experts say that typically in order for a victim to win damages in such a case, the court must find that the property owner knew or should have known that someone would be victimized on their property because the property was located in a high crime area. As of 2006, it's unlikely this would have fit the bill. Additionally, with the ongoing construction, it seems that they would have had a defense for some of their lax security measures. So I'm not sure it would be something that's worth pursuing anyways. But to consider your point about what additional information may have come from such a lawsuit, We already know that the gate system was being left open because of the construction. Jennifer's mom has mentioned how the security officers that were in place were not writing down license plates correctly, if at all. And we know that the keys to the various condos or apartments were accessible in the front office of the building for workers and the like. So information that may have come to light, I believe already has. Hi guys, I just want to say thank you um, for all you're doing through the Unconcluded podcast. I'm hoping to bring Jennifer home. Um, I have a quick question, um, and I don't know that it's been addressed on the podcast, but I had read somewhere um, early on that Jennifer actually had a dinner party planned um, for the evening of the night, uh, the evening that she was reported abducted. And I was wondering if you know if that is true or not, or if that is just um, a rumor. Um, so if you could um, give some more enlightenment on that, I'd really appreciate it. Again, thanks for all you do. Bye-bye. As always, thanks for your message. I'll be brief here because we did actually respond to a very similar question on a sidebar episode a few weeks back. But to answer your question, no, Jennifer did not have a dinner party planned. In fact, her mom told us that her table will still set from the holidays. So she had her Christmas time settings out. And so maybe that's where the apparent rumor had come from uh, because she did have the table set as if she was having a party, but it was just the decorations from 
the Christmas holiday. Hi. Um, great podcast and uh, been listening. Just discovered you. Um, remember the uh, daylight savings time? Ends in November, right? So in January, when they when the disappearance occurred, it would have been you know dark, pretty dark around here in the morning. So that would you know be a consideration, I would think. Also, um, if she did go out the night before, there wasn't any FedExes and UPSs. You would have to go to the airport if you wanted to mail off or overnight a cell phone. Did anyone check the airport? Did anyone check the Orlando airport? If there was any video? Just a thought. Um, and I have some others. Um, because I thought I had heard in some podcast that she had was talking to someone over the phone and there were people working in her apartment that didn't speak English and someone had was telling her to not say things that they might overhear, um, but perhaps that they did understand what she was saying. I know it can be very frustrating when you're having work done on your place and maybe it's not right or construction isn't working out or has to be redone, can be hard. Don't forget, back in 2006, this was a really interesting time. We had, you know, we were, we didn't know it then, but, you know, we were in a bubble, especially in in Florida and in Orlando, for sure. And uh, all that led to mortgage-backed securities and all those problems financially. Um, People were, you know, getting mortgages and, bad mortgages, but they didn't know it at that time, and there was a lot of financial, um, you know, fraud going on, and so people were, um, the reason I mention it is it was a very different financial climate. I know that she worked in a financial area, um, I think, so was somebody having financial problems? I mean, you know, I mean, Bernie Madoff and all that hadn't come about yet, but it was around the corner, you know, the the bubble hadn't burst yet, but uh, I'm just speculating, thinking about it. This was pre-Facebook. This was MySpace still. There were, things were very different. On January 24th, 2006, the sunrise was at 7.17 a.m., That's roughly 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes before the time that Jennifer would have been leaving for work. So if she left for work on her normal schedule, there would have been some light. So a morning abduction between the time she left her condo on her own, but before she made it to her car, it wouldn't have been under the cover of darkness, which is another reason that many people speculate that something may have taken place the night before. Now to your second point, I find it extremely unlikely that she would have traveled to the airport to mail a package the night of January 23rd. Not only because she told her family she planned to mail it from work the next day, but also because it would have been at least a 20-minute drive to get there. We do know that there were some apparent searches near the airport, but those details we don't have. And I've never heard anything about airport video being reviewed, so I can't comment on that 
one way or the other. And to your last thought about the financial issues that were bubbling to a head at the time of Jennifer's disappearance and the fact that Jennifer worked in a related financial industry, there's been a lot of speculation about that over the years. In fact, one of the most frequent emails I get is about if Jennifer may have discovered something at work that resulted in her disappearance. And while we certainly can't rule that out, based on what we do know about her and how she'd share her problems, big and small, with her close friends and family, I really feel that she would have shared these concerns with somebody. But as I said, it can't be ruled out, and the timing certainly raises the question. So I understand why people continue to ask it. You guys should watch The Big Short. You know that movie with Christian Bale? That's going to give you a time frame. You guys got to do a little time travel. It's going to help you go back in time to see the way Florida was, Orlando was. Well, I mean, you were living here, but to give you a concept idea of the way things were financially and the way they were going to get worse and go off a cliff really fast. In 2006, that's the world. In 2005 and six, besides the hurricanes that we had in 2004, which did a lot of bad things to the area, that's the world she was working in. That bubble, that world, that finance, that fantasy financial world that eventually blew up. So I, I recommend you watching the big short. And then, does anybody know about St. Croix? I mean, I know she didn't unpack that suitcase, right? But St. Croix, no one ever travels down there. I mean, ever since Charlotte, Francis, and Jean in 2004, those hurricanes demolished that place. Why would anybody go to St. Croix? Does she have a purpose? I mean, is it a financial purpose? Or what, what was the big deal? People don't usually fly there either. Cruise ships don't ever stop there hardly, so I can see that. It's not really a port of call. Hardly ever. I've never really seen it. And I've been on a ton of cruises. But anyway, St. Croix. No one ever brings that up or the suitcase that she never unpacked. Thanks for the movie recommendation. I'll be sure to check that out. But to your comments about St. Croix. The reason that her and her boyfriend at the time traveled to St. Croix was because of very close friends that had a place there where they stayed. Their purpose was a brief vacation getaway. Also, St. Croix is a port of call for several major cruise lines, and I have a friend who actually runs a private jet service and flies clients to St. Croix and other islands in the U.S. Virgin Islands all the time. Hey, this is uh, Joey from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I just heard the podcast on Jennifer Kessie, and uh, I found it pretty, pretty interesting. You know, I was, I was looking up the website, I looked up the Wikipedia uh, the one thing that I did notice that I thought was kind of interesting that I, I didn't I didn't notice it was mentioned on the podcast if it was hearing the the one witness talk about how she she knew that she saw her car with the other individual and then she brought up the ponytail. Whenever you look at the security photo of basically the one person of interest that the face is obscured, you notice he's wearing a hat. Uh, it looks to me, in in looking at the photo, that that guy, the, the person of interest, looks like he has a ponytail or at least long hair tucked underneath the hat. You can see a slight bulge on the back of his head. Now it's it's kind of obscured; it's a little bit blurred, but I, it looks to me like it's somebody trying to cover up having long hair. That, and he's kind of a tall, slender man. It makes me wonder if uh, 
the, the person who had gotten that eyewitness, if you were to show her that picture, if it would look even close or similar to the same person that you had seen. Uh, just a thought. Uh, I look forward to hearing back or coming back to hearing a little bit more on the podcast. Thanks. Okay, first of all, that's pretty weird. We just finished talking about flying to St. Croix, and then we have a voicemail which sounds like it's in an airport. Anyways, to go back to your question, yes, one of the things that people seem to see with the POI is a ponytail, or a covering of longer hair, or hair tucked up into a hat. It's another reason that these witness accounts, not only the Oak Ridge car witness, but also the one from a few episodes back at the Huntington on the Green, are compelling, because it's possible that they saw this person of interest. However, we also have to be mindful of the opposing point of view. Because you saw a man with a possible ponytail, or interesting hair at least, which obviously means that others could as well. So we also have to keep in mind that potential witnesses, especially this late in the game, have seen the POI images and could be using such images to describe the men they claim to have seen. So which one is it? It all becomes a kind of chicken before the egg kind of question. I don't believe either witnesses to be lying. But when we are asking questions a decade later, we have to realize that memories and accuracy can be a fluid thing. This week's sidebar is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And it's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I want to tell you about some upcoming meals. Meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese and charmed tomatoes. Or sautéed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta. Both of those I'm looking forward to. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week, or you can let Blue Apron choose for you. Recipes are not repeated within a year and you'll never get bored. Each meal comes with a step-by-step easy-to-follow recipe card and the ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Blue Apron's guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook, fresh, or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com unconcluded. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com unconcluded. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, now we'll go ahead and move on to the social media and email portion of the show. We've had quite a few people asking on Facebook to explain why we think the event at Oak Ridge took place January 23rd. Yes, we mentioned in episode 9 that the event with the car in the woods, if it was in fact Jennifer's car, would have had to have taken place the night of January 23rd, 2006. And the reason is simple. Within the known timeline, it's the only time that it could have taken place. The night of January 22nd, Jennifer was still in Fort Lauderdale. 
and the night of January 24th, her car had already been parked at the Huntington on the Green. The witness doesn't remember the date or day that she saw the car, only that it was right before Jennifer's disappearance. So of course, our assumption is that it was the 23rd based on her actually having seen Jennifer's car. If it had been any other day, we could eliminate this event as related to Jennifer's disappearance. The problem is, we have no way of knowing exactly what day it took place other than to go by the witness's own statements. And those statements make a case for the night of the 23rd. Rebecca asks, have you been able to find out any more information about the apartment the police searched and that comment they made about the case being resolved within a week? No, we don't. But that statement is still so bizarre to me. And it makes me think that they had zeroed in on a suspect at that point in time. I can't understand why any law enforcement officer would make a statement like that, actually. What good can come from counting their chickens before they hatch? I'm not sure I'll ever understand it, but unfortunately, it's just one of several things I could say that about in this case. Michelle on Facebook would like to know what kind of research we've done on the church. We have, actually. To start, we just wanted to contact the church to ask about prior searches that may have been conducted in 2006, or ask about the possibilities of a search there now. Problem is, we've went into a bit of a wall. The church doesn't appear to be active at this point. Their listed phone number is disconnected, and there aren't any records of ongoing activity for several years. We've checked into and attempted to contact some of their prior officers and directors, but so far that's been unfruitful as well. And on that topic, there's actually a Huntington on the Green address on their officers and directors filing. Just another one of those strange things we've run into while investigating this case. This has been a fairly common question that we've received after each of the witness statements. Laylee on Facebook would like to know if the Oak Ridge witness contacted us or if we contacted her first. As with the others, we tracked this witness down. We had noticed an old internet posting about this particular event. And maybe to give you just a little bit of a glimpse about how we accomplished that. The old posting referenced a first name and of course the location of the event being the woods near Oak Ridge Baptist Church. From there, we were able to determine the street on which this person would have had to have lived for the story to match up, with their backyard facing the wooded patch behind the church. So at that point, we spent time searching old property records and background reports to find anyone who had lived on that road in 2006 with a first name to match the one posted online. There were actually more than one. So at that point, we individually contacted the possibilities until we finally found the correct person. And at that point, we were able to obtain the statement you heard in episode 9. Further, I'd seen someone mention that because of the Huntington on the Green witness had mentioned a person in a ponytail, that maybe this person had come forward and also talked about a ponytail. Well, that's just not the case, because already I had referenced the earlier internet posting, and also, we had talked to this particular person long before the episode with the Huntington on the Green witness had ever aired. Sharati has a statement and a question. I think it sounds credible, but I just can't wrap my head around a nighttime abduction. Too much points to the next day. What would the explanation be for the things that are missing if it was not for her going to work the next day? For example, briefcase, both phones, heels, also the shower being wet, clothes laid out. I just don't see a nighttime abduction or scenario that happens before that Tuesday morning unless someone took her car the night before for whatever reason, then came back the next morning for her, which doesn't make much sense to me either. This is a great point, because so much of the evidence points to Jennifer getting ready and leaving for work in the morning. As you mentioned, the briefcase and phones are just one example. 
And that's the reason why the initial police detectives and many of you out there have to speculate about her taking the phone to be mailed that night. There has to be an explanation for why that would be missing also. And as for the shower, we previously mentioned it's just not an exact science. So I think we have to be careful using it to draw conclusions. We know that Jennifer showered every morning, but she might also shower if she was going to go somewhere at night, which is precisely the question here. And talking with Jennifer's friends, those that lived with her as an adult, there is no way Jennifer was going out to meet some random person. However, if it was someone she knew, they couldn't completely discard that possibility. Could she have showered, got dressed, and left? Obviously taking the missing items with her for whatever reason? Sure. Do I think that's what happened? Probably not. Even on the last sidebar, someone mentioned the car being parked at noon on the 24th strongly suggested a morning abduction. And maybe it does. But right now, I think it isn't important. Finding more information is what's important. There is potentially contradictory evidence in this case. And finding out how it all fits together is just going to take more information. And that's the focus. This is probably a good place to mention something else I wanted to get to on this sidebar. Over the last few weeks, I've talked with Jennifer's longtime roommate and friend again. And one of the things I was curious about was that work attache or briefcase or whatever you want to call it. I asked if it was something that Jennifer would ever leave in the car overnight. And she told me that she's sure that's the case sometimes. That when they lived together, that Jennifer really didn't do any work after she got home. She also mentioned something that she'd thought about too. That Jennifer went straight to work from her boyfriend's house on Monday. She wouldn't have had any Tupperware or anything that she needed to bring in with the work bag. Not that this offers any definite information, but certainly I believe that it's possible Jennifer's work bag was already in her car, which opens up some new possibilities. Did she run down to her car to put the friend's cell phone in her work bag so she wouldn't forget it, opening herself up to possible danger that night? I don't know. Something to think about. Galen asks in an email, were there any landfill or trash collection areas in the vicinity, and if so, were they searched right after Jen went missing to possibly find the items that are also missing? I'm not aware of any myself, and in all my research about the search locations for episode 9, I did not come across any specific references to searches at a landfill. However, many of you have been attached to this case or following this case for a lot longer than I have. So if you're aware of any, let us know. Kathy asks, I have two questions about something that I'm not sure have been discussed yet. Do you know if the wife of the co-worker was ever interviewed about her husband's whereabouts on the evening of January 23rd and or the morning of January 24th? And the second question was, if she was asked, do you know what she said? I do not know. My best guess would be that law enforcement did. However, I can't say that for a fact. As far as publicly, not that I'm aware of. Lyle asks, at what time on Tuesday did someone from Jen's office notify her parents that she was missing? Why would that have occurred so quickly unless someone at Jen's office had a suspicion that she might be in potential danger? Why would anyone in her office have her mother's phone number? To answer the second part first, Jennifer listed her parents as her emergency contacts, which I know isn't unusual. Until I got married, I listed my mom as my emergency contact at my jobs as well. I think that's something that's pretty common. Jennifer's parents were notified sometime between 11 and 11.30 a.m., but I don't find that odd at all. Jennifer hadn't yet shown up to work, at this point was nearly three hours late, 
she had missed a meeting, and she had no history of showing up late and not calling in. On the morning of the 24th, there was no call in, and her employer's calls to her cell phone and landline were going straight to voicemail. This was so completely out of character for Jennifer that I'd probably be more suspicious if they did nothing. Denise wants to know if anybody from Jen's work ever identified what she was wearing to work that Monday and if those clothes were found at her apartment. Yes, the clothes that she had worn to work on that Monday were actually found in her condo. They were draped over a chair and her parents had left them there. Um, There's actually a TV interview where you can see those clothes still uh, over the desk chair that's in her bedroom. Here's another one from Denise. She wants to know if any of Jen's credit card or bank purchases were scrutinized. Yes, her bank statements and credit card information was pulled by law enforcement and it was looked over as well as monitoring for any activity that would have happened after she went missing. We do not currently have these records. I wish that we did, but uh, we don't. So we have to trust that the law enforcement did their due diligence on looking through those records to make sure there wasn't anything that could be possibly related to her disappearance. Michelle wants to know if the witness at Oak Ridge is the same woman that posted online years ago about seeing a quote blonde woman being taken from one vehicle and put into a truck. And if it's two separate sightings that it could be uh, very big for the case, or is it the same witness who maybe has gotten a little bit confused over the years? I think that these are two separate accounts. The witness that you heard from in episode 9, she never once mentioned a blonde woman or a truck in either the online posting or her conversations with us. I did want to quickly mention another email we received from a listener that took offense to some of the comments made by a previous witness we played on the show and just thought it would be appropriate to state that individuals are responsible for their own words, and we in no way endorse their statements other than to present their accounts to you in their own words. We'll be back next week with episode 10, and we'll be speaking with someone that many of you may already be familiar with. Okay, well, uh, geographical profile and first, um, uh, uh, Geographical profiling has been used successfully uh, probably since um, 02 or 03. What it does is it takes now, now normally it takes a, a series, and 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 um and it's usually used in serial murder cases or serial rape cases where you have a series of crimes that you know that are are are, are definitely linked. If you know something about the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, it's time to speak up. Call the Orlando Police Department and ask to speak to the detective in charge of this case. The time is right now. If you enjoy the show, a five-star rating and review really helps put the show and Jennifer in front of more people. Please take a moment to do so if you can. And if you're interested in supporting our efforts, you can head to unconcluded.com and click support. Also, don't forget the GoFundMe set up by listeners with all funds raised going directly to the Kessie family. Just search Jennifer's name on the GoFundMe site. Also, our new Patreon supporters deserve a shout out. So thank you to Cynthia and the Fall Line Podcast. 
Make sure you stick around until after the credits to hear a promo from another podcast you might want to check out. The music in this episode is by Lee Rossevier, and we'll see you next time. On February 17, 1974, Carla Walker was pulled from the passenger side of a car. After a struggle leaving her boyfriend unconscious, Carla was abducted by the strange attacker. Her body was found in a culvert near a lake three days later. Join the Gone Cold podcast as we explore Carla's case in depth, as well as other unsolved and missing persons cases throughout the state of Texas. Texas.